That has nothing to do with Matthew chapter 5. We are still in the Sermon on the Mount, best sermon ever, Jesus' sermon, and we're in chapter 5 and verse 27 through 30 as we're looking at these antithesis, these You've heard it said this way, but I tell you, when Jesus goes on and on and on, and I've entitled the sermon today, Keep the Home Fires Burning. It's a phrase you may have heard of, but you may not know where it comes from. Perhaps the most popular song in England during World War I, nobody, was anybody alive during World War I? None of us, okay, just checking. Yeah, it, it was called Keep the Home Fires Burning Till the Boys Come Home. And the song begins this way, keep the home fires burning while your hearts are yearning. Look at that, it rhymed. Do you see how that works? The phrase keep the home fires burning came to mean this. What that phrase means, even today, is to maintain one's home, especially while one's spouse was away for a variety of reasons, not just wartime, but a variety of reasons. And this resonates greatly with me. And I think the Bible is full of teaching for each of us, not just to maintain our home. Hear me. The Bible doesn't teach that we should just maintain our home, but we should improve it. We should grow it. We should see it become more and more like the Savior in whom we worship the phrase, while your hearts are yearning, reminds me of something today. Just think about that for a minute. Keep the home fires burning while your hearts are yearning. It reminds me of something that Scripture talks about over and over again, the power of the heart. Do you know what I mean when I say the power of the heart? We're not talking about, we're not talking about pumping blood there, okay? We're talking about, it's talking about who we are inside that's what the bible is talking about and there's great power in the heart especially if our heart is in the right place with god our passage today speaks to a heart issue that affects our relationships especially marriage and i would just say it is prolific in our world today and i want you to hear me it is prolific in our churches today let's look at it matthew chapter 5 verses 27 through 30. I brought my glasses just in case I can't read through the water. No, I think I can do it. You ready? Here we go. Jesus speaking and teaching. You have heard that it was said. You see that phrase again? Do not commit adultery, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then look what Jesus says. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell and if your right hand causes you to sin cut it off and throw it away for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell let's pray thank you Lord for the opportunity to look at every word and every verse in your word in the Sermon on the Mount. Help us to not shy away from what you teach us, what your standard is. Jesus, thank you for your clarification and teaching. Thank you that you take things right to the heart of the matter. You have a higher standard. We're grateful for that. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Yes, my voice is lower today. 
because I stood for an hour at the starting line of the Albuquerque's longest slip and slide and said, on your mark, get set, go. I did it in four different languages. I won't, I won't tell you which one, but just, uh, you had to yell out there. It was just great pandemonium. So I feel like a really good preacher today. I don't know why, but you know, <laughs> kind of nice. Yes, Roger, I sound like you a little bit, don't I? I sound like Roger a little bit. So I, I, I almost wanted to read the scripture that way, but I, you know, I didn't want to do that. But here, here, as we get going, can I help you with something today? God's commandments are tough. Have you noticed? God's commandments, they're tough. They're not like the world in which we live. This, uh, what is it called? This, uh, whatever is, is my truth is truth. What's that word I'm looking for? Say it loud. All I hear is... Yeah. Whatever that relativity... That's not it. That's like Einstein. All right. You know what I'm saying, all right? We're just out there. Whatever. If it feels good, do it. No, God's commandments, they, they got a line right here and a line right here. And this is the basement and it just goes up and there is no ceiling. God's commandments are tough. But let me help you with something. First of all, they require earnest effort. Okay? You will never be able to obey God's commandments if you're wishy-washy about it or you come to it only on a Sunday morning or only at Christmas time, hello, or only at Easter time. No, you, it, they are tough. They require earnest effort. And I want you to remember an overarching principle as we deal with this subject today. Here it is. You may want to jot it down. God's commandments were not given to frustrate us but to fulfill us. God's commandments were not meant to frustrate us, but to fulfill us, to mature us, to complete us. That process in which God's Holy Spirit is living in us and is working to complete us, and it will happen on that day when we see Jesus. But today we're talking about a sexual sin, and so I want to start with an overarching scripture. Jot this down, 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. Here's what it says. Remember, God's commandments aren't there just to frustrate us. No, 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 they're there to fulfill us. Here it is. Run from sexual immorality. Every sin a person can commit is outside the body. On the contrary, the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Okay, I want you to really think about that. The Bible is consistently clear. Sin is sin, right? We categorize sin, but sin is sin. Just takes one sin, no matter what it is, and we become a sinner. We need God. We're lost. We're destined for hell. However, I want to tell you, the scriptures in other places besides just here show us, the Bible teaches us of the seriousness of sexual sin. I can't say it any other way. The seriousness of sexual sin. And we should heed its teaching. So listen closely today. Number one, in verses 27 and 28, 
we see a higher standard as Jesus, again, takes it to the next level. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Before we jump in and talk about that, I want to give you two case studies. A case study on Joseph in the Old Testament and a case study on David in the Old Testament. If you go back to the book of Genesis, you'll remember something about Joseph. Do you remember him at all? Remember the coat of many colors? Remember the dreams? Do you remember the brothers? They got a little sick of Joseph, didn't they? Got a little jealous, threw him in a pit, and they were going to kill him. And then, you, if you'll remember the story, what happens? They came up with an idea. They sold him into slavery, if you'll recall, to Ishmaelites. Do you remember that? I just wanted to say that word. It just sounds like I've been to seminary. Ishmaelites, all right? So, they, they, he, there he is. And yet, somehow... God blesses him. The scripture tells us in Genesis 39, the Lord was with him. And of course, if we read to the end of the story, Joseph says what? Do you remember that great proclamation? All this was done. The, The Lord knew what was going on. And it was for good. And boy, was it for good, wasn't it? All that happened to Joseph affected nations and the world and all those things. But here we see the Lord blesses him and he ends up in a place called Egypt, and he's bought, he's still a slave, he's bought by a guy named Potiphar. Anybody remember Potiphar? Now, how many of you named your son Potiphar? Raise it up high. Let me see. Let me see. Middle name even? Okay. Well, who's Potiphar? Basically, Potiphar was the commander of Pharaoh's imperial guard. It's a really big deal. And Joseph goes into that household and is serving and he finds favor remember the lord's with him he gets promoted and finally he's put in charge of potiphar's house do you remember he's put in charge of all of it of all of potiphar's dealings that is a big deal the scripture in genesis 39 tells us something about joseph i relate to joseph it says he was well built and handsome Got to move it up to here. Come on. What are you laughing at? Yeah. Think about it for a minute. Young man, he's over everything. He has power over it all. This, is the, this guy is a big deal, and he's over all of his stuff, and he's well-built, and he's handsome. And Scripture tells us after some time, Potiphar's wife is smitten with Joseph, and she lusts after him. And she wants to commit adultery. She already has a husband. Remember his name? Potiphar. Okay? So this, I'm going to talk a lot to men today. And this passage directly relates to men a lot today. But ladies, don't think you're off the hook. Because all I have to go up up to you and say, Potiphar's wife. And you know what we're talking about. So think about this. Here's what I want you to get. All this about Joseph is this. She, she wants to sleep with him, and he refused. This is the case study I want you to see. Listen to Genesis 39.9. No one is greater in this house than I am. Joseph, this is what Joseph is saying to her. No one in this house is greater than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. And this is the phrase that gets me. 
and is a good example for me and I hope for you. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Do you see what he does with lust and adultery right there? Listen, it, he's saying it to this guy's wife. She's got great power. It's a wicked thing and it's a sin. He doesn't say a sin against your husband. He says it's a sin against God. And facing retaliation, even prison, and we know the rest of the story, she does frame him. He is thrown into prison because of his refusal. Joseph takes a stand for God's righteousness. And if we've learned anything about the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, and up to now, it keeps coming back. God's righteousness. God's righteousness. Are you, th- are you <clears throat> thirsting and hungering for God's righteousness? And remember, we learned that means all of God's righteousness. Not just the part that's easy for us, but even the tempting things that are difficult for us. It's his righteousness. What an example for us. Case study number two. David. I'm not going to ask how many of you named your child David because a lot of hands would go up, Okay. But it's great. We know the life of David, don't we? Amazing what happened when he was younger and what goes on. And scripture even describes David as a man after God's own heart. You remember that? And the scripture right there as well says, the Lord has appointed him as ruler over the people. It's a great story, but I want to move farther along into the story. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1 through 4a, 2 Samuel 11. In the spring, when kings march out to war, now who's the king? David. David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. Well, there, that's a whole other sermon. There's a problem right there. He wasn't doing what he's supposed to be doing. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw, circle that word, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her, and he reported, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hittite. David sent messengers to get her. Sometimes the Bible is blunt, you guys. And when she came to him, he slept with her. Now, I want you to notice something about this case study as it relates to lust and adultery. David was not where God intended him to be. David, we could say it this way, David was outside of God's boundaries. Notice the progression, though. I want you to see the progression because no one intentionally sets out to choose adultery. I don't believe that. Well, today is the day I'm going to set out. No, but there's progression. Do you see that? He wasn't where he's supposed to be. He made that decision. He's out of God's will for him. He wanders around. He sees. Then he sins. He's thinking. And then he gets a report back. And then he says, "Go." do you see the progression? It doesn't start with David was walking down the street and bam, he committed adultery. No. There's a progression. And listen to me today, church, especially men. You've got to stop the progression in your life. You cannot allow it to go from A to B to C to D. Because when you get to D, you're in a heap of mess. You need to cut it off well before that. 
Lamar, why would you be so passionate about saying that? Well, let's look at the results of David's lust and adultery. There was pregnancy. Boy, is that a popular today? Popular top topic today? Pregnancy, unwanted pregnancy, all these kind of things. So there was pregnancy. Then there was cover-up. I don't have time to share the whole story. You can go read about it. But there was a cover-up David had. And then there was murder. Do you remember that? The order was given basically to murder Uriah the Hittite, her husband. And then a son was born. You know what happened to that son? It's not Solomon. Some people think of Solomon. No, that son died. Died. One of the results of the lust and adultery of David is his son who was born died. That is pretty significant. And then it gets worse. We see as we read scripture chronologically that there was disaster brought upon David's household, his lineage. And if you've read scripture closely, this disaster comes especially in the form of of sexual sin. I'm telling you, God doesn't mess around. And you can go look at his children. You can go look at instances of rape, incest, all kinds of stuff. I'm not going to get into it, but uh, it's like, I mean, it's like it ought to, it's coming right out of a movie or a soap opera or something, okay? But this is the result of what he did. It's quite a contrast to Joseph. But let's go back to 27 and 28. You've heard it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Hmm. Jesus moves. Last week we were in the sixth commandment. Do you remember what that was? Do not murder. And now he moves to the seventh command, commandment, which also refers to the tenth commandment. And he says, he, he quotes from scripture and says, do not commit adultery. And then Jesus teaches a higher standard that includes that, I believe, that which in, inclu, includes or encourages, excuse me, adultery in any way. He's like, there are no excuses. There are, there are no um, conditions. He takes it to a standard basically to show us that, hey, it's not right in any way or circumstances. And remember, Jesus is not opposing the law, thou shalt not commit adultery. Do you remember that? He was clear. We looked at it a few weeks ago. Came to fulfill the law, to bring it to completion, to take the law and take it where it was intended to go. And he does that here. He is condemning, hear me church, he is condemning lust in any form. Any form. And remember, God is eternal. How many of you remember that? He's the same what? Yesterday, today, and tomorrow, right? He is the Alpha and Omega. We could go on and on. Don't fool yourself to think that when Jesus spoke these words, he did not have foreknowledge of the world wide web. Hello? Or what you can pull up on your device. Hello? No. He condemns it, any of it, in any form. There's two prominent offenders. Let's look at them this morning. First, there's the heart. Second, there's the eye. Do you see that in the verses we've just read? Jesus states that there is heart adultery. 
Well, what's the phrase? He has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Do you see that in the scripture? You see, our thoughts can prompt immorality. Remember David? How he wondered? He even inquired about Bathsheba? Our society encourages these thoughts. I would tell you this, Satan is good at providing opportunities for these kind of thoughts. But don't be fooled, church. Listen closely. Men, listen closely. Even if your outward appearance looks good, your inward heart can condemn you. I don't really care how you look on the outward. I'm more concerned about what is inside. The principal culprit here is the heart. And it is all you. Or we might say it this way, it's all on you, brother. No excuses. Remember something about God. 1 Samuel 16, 7. We quote it often. God looks where? At the heart of mankind. God sees the evil before it ever becomes outward action. Jesus does something interesting. In Matthew 15, 8 and 9, Matthew 15, 8 and 9, he quotes Isaiah. Listen. These people honor me with their lips. That's outward, right? They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. Listen, don't go to a counselor and have them tell you, well, I understand, extenuating circumstances. That's the word I was looking for. Run from that. That's not what Jesus teaches. And I would tell you something. This is a, a cautionary tale in Matthew 15, 8, and 9. Don't be that guy. Don't be that gal. We must guard our heart, our inner being from lust. The second culprit, offender, the eye. Jesus states that there's heart adultery. There's also eye adultery. Did you catch that phrase? We read it. Who does what? What's the action verb there? Who looks at a woman to lust for her. You see, the eye gate is the gate of much sin. The Greek word for looks, it's a present participle. It refers to something. Listen closely. It refers to the continuous process of looking. Continually looking. The idea is not, and I want to help you with this. I've heard some people say certain things that I don't believe are true because they don't know what the word is. This is not the idea of an incidental glance. Okay? Listen, guys, you don't have to wear these glasses that ruin all your vision just because you're worried. You might walk by and glance. It's a pretty lady, God's creation, and then you continue on. It's gone. You see what I'm saying? It's not what the word is. It's the continual look it's intentional and repeated gazing, if I could say it that way. And accordingly, the man who is condemned is the man who looks at a woman with the deliberate intention of lusting after her. Now, men, I'm sorry. God made us a certain way, and we are stimulated mainly by seeing. That's the way God made us. So, ladies, if you're going, what's the big deal here? Well, maybe you weren't created like guys were created, okay? So... W- 
Adultery often begins via the eye, and men, we must guard our eyes, not just our heart, but guard our eyes at what we see. Guys, let me just say it this way. Pastor, I just need a teaching on this. Don't look at the stuff. You know what I'm saying? Just don't do it. Don't look at it. Remove it. Block it. Hide it. Whatever you need to do. Don't even look at it. And women, I want to say something to you, and you're, some of you are going to think I'm chauvinistic, and I just want to apologize now. You pray about it before you come talk to me, okay? Women, I think you need to look. But Now that you know that guys are stimulated by seeing, listen. You should look at yourself and purpose in your heart to be modest. Can I say that to you today? Can I say that to you today? Our poor daughters and granddaughters don't have a chance unless we are modest and model and teach that. Now, I'm not going to get into all the exact articles of clothing, what you should do, but I'm telling you, if you live in Albuquerque for one day, do you notice how modesty is pretty much gone? Now, modesty doesn't save you. You don't have, I'm glad, I don't see a bunch of people wearing turtlenecks today. That's okay. All right, you don't have to do that. We're not putting burkas on and all that kind of stuff. But listen, modesty applies, I think, to you. You can help us in this way. But Jesus is clear here. Here's the definition for lust. Gazing on a member of the opposite sex for the purpose of arousing illicit sexual desire. And he connects that to it being adulterous. So here we have the heart adultery we have the eye adultery, and these lead, unfortunately, often to body adultery. What are we to do? Listen to this quote from a prominent pastor. In fact, David helped me with this. I've been struggling with these sermons, and David said, hey, take a look at what this guy said. Here's a quote from a prominent pastor. Put boundaries between you and the things that might tempt you to sin. How does that sound? Put boundaries between you and the things that might tempt you to sin. And I love this question. Why battle a temptation in the future if we have the power to eliminate it today? Amen? Think about that. That's one of the most practical, uh, wise things that I have read in a long time. Why? Remember the progression? Even with David? Why let that become something in the future when we through God working in our life, can eliminate that today. Listen, church. Churches are good at putting up boundary fences. But you know what we do lots of times? We put the fence right up next to the temptation. Have you noticed that? Maybe in your life? You know, thou shalt not. But we'll put the fence. The bound. We're not going to go over the fence, but we put it right next to the temptation. Listen, church. Practically, let's take the fence and the boundary and move it way back here. I think that will help us. Here's God's will. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 7. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 7. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans, who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage 
of a brother or sister. Let me just stop before I go any further. I know there are some pastors and religious leaders who have taken advantage, especially of children and teenagers. Doesn't it break your heart when we read about that? And we should. It makes me sick that someone would have that kind of authority and do those things. When Scripture is clear, we should, not, it, it's wrong, we should not wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister, especially someone under our authority. But I want to give you the flip side of that, too. There are tens of thousands of pastors and leaders who are not involved in that. And we should pray for them that they would never succumb to that. And yes, we should fight and we should support all we can those victims. And scripture talks about it, okay? No one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. Let me go on with the scripture. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. It's a higher standard, amen. Let's move on. Some of you are like, thank you. Let's look at verses 29 and 30, and we see what I call the surgical solution. Now, if, when you first read 29 and 30, does that look like a tough teaching to you? Oswald Chambers said it this way, this line of discipline is the sternest one that ever struck mankind. I want you to know as you're looking at those verses, this was also one of Jesus' favorite sayings because we read in Scripture, he used varying variations of it at various times. And some have taken him literally. Did you know that? Don't ask the person next to you. Well, you can look at them. See if they can still got both eyes, you know, all that kind of stuff. Some have taken it literally. If you remember back, the early church father, Origen, some of you may, may have heard of him. He physically castrated himself to overcome his sensual desires. He's taking this literally. Here's the problem with the literal interpretation. Are you ready? Case study of origin. He still had his eyes. Hello? And if he had those removed, he would still have his heart that could entertain lustful thoughts. Instead, what Jesus is doing here, which he does sometimes, is he is teaching with hyperbole and allegory. Well, what does that mean? Here's what hyperbole means. It's intentional exaggeration for the sake of making a point. You get that? You do it all the time. You just don't know it. See, I just did one there, kind of. I said all the time. Maybe you don't really do it all the time. But, you know, it can get, get up there. He's making a point. What is the point? What Jesus is teaching us is that as followers of Jesus, here's the surgical solution. Here's the principle. Are you ready? If you're a disciple of Christ, you must deal radically with sin. This is the problem of the American church today. We don't deal radically with sin. And it could be all kinds of stuff. Somebody may tell an off-color joke. We don't deal with that. We should. Someone may share something that seems racist or prejudiced. We ought to deal with that. Someone doesn't want to be reconciled with someone else. We ought to deal with that. We must deal radically with sin. And the sin we're talking about today is lust and adultery. Okay? The Christian must take drastic actions to deal with temptation. And we don't do that. And so Jesus teaches us here to eliminate, metaphorically, the causes. Did you see that? The stuff that causes you to do that. That's an interesting word. It, it means a snare or to trap. 
You see, again, I don't think anyone intentionally decides I'm going to do this. They start, and then they get trapped. Or there's a snare that grabs them and has them. That's the word that Jesus uses here. So I'm going to give you three quick pictures here. I see in verses 29 and 30, the first one is the picture of surgery. Gouge out, gouge out the offending member. Well, what does that mean if we know the principle is we deal radically with sin? It means this. we got to cut out the lustful look. we got to cut out the lustful touch. we got to cut it out of our lives completely. It doesn't have to grow back. That's the picture of surgery. Cut it out. Number two, there's a picture of death where he says, let the offending body members perish. Well, what does that mean? Well, what feels good or what pleases the flesh is not always good. Come on, think about it. It's not just, if it feels good, do it. No, that is not good advice. Think about that for a minute. It's a picture of death. It needs to die. Self-denial is sometimes called for in certain situations and temptations. It's going to be different for you than it is for you, but it needs to die in our life. And thirdly, there's a picture of repentance. Well, Lamar, how do you get that? Well, look, it, it talks about, uh, about going to hell a couple times. You see that? Same phrase, repeated. So we need a picture of re repentance. That's the third one. That's what I see there. And that we're turning away from this stuff, going to hell, and we are doing what? We're submitting it to God. We're repenting. Whatever part, whatever circumstance is tempting us, we need to give it to God. So as we get ready to close, I want to let Scripture help us in these endeavors. Here we go. I'm going to give you four things this morning. Number one. In fact, I don't even remember if this is in the sermon notes. Do you have four things there? Oh, you do. I can talk fast then. Number one, make a covenant not to look at or think about immoral persons, places, or things. I go all the way back to Job of all places. Job 31.1 where he said this, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. So we, we got to make a covenant. I mean, Job did it. People have done it in every generation since. Listen, make a covenant that I won't do it. I won't look in that way. I won't think about that. Hmm. That probably means I shouldn't go there, right? I shouldn't read that. I shouldn't look at that. Number two, keep your eyes and mind upon things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable. And I say to you, you should do this immediately, each and every day. We should purpose in our hearts, we should so try that when we get up, we give our life to the Lord that day. You know, I know we're Christian, but you know what I mean. And that we would say, here, I give all of me to, to you today. And God, keep my eyes, my mind, my heart on these things. It comes from Philippians 4.8. Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is any praise, dwell on these things. So we dwell on moral excellence and we dwell on praise to the Lord. Number three, learn to take captive every thought. P. 
People who have learned to do this, it is amazing. There, I could tell you testimony after testimony of people who were stuck in addiction, people who were stuck in this condition, in all kinds of sin, all kinds of problems, and they have learned through God's power to take every captive thought. What's the connector between lust, between adultery, between addiction to chemical substances, between prolific habitual sin? It is the thought. It's the trigger over and over and over. We've got to learn to take captive every thought. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. For though we live in the body, we do not wage war in an unspiritual way. Since the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. I use that translation because that is the word, and it is strong. Can you picture something being demolished? For the demolition of strongholds, we demolish arguments and every high-minded thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive. Why? To obey Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. And number four is just a practical one I gave you. Resist the first thought. Move on immediately. Flee temptation. Get busy on something wholesome immediately and without hesitation. Listen, how do you, Pastor, I don't know how to flee. Replace immediately. Replace it. Resist it and replace it with something that's wholesome, something that's godly, and do it without hesitation. And then as it says on the shampoo bottle, repeat and rinse. Repeat and rinse. Do it, do it, do it, do it. Listen, I struggle with habits in my life. I don't know about you. And you start doing something a few times, what does it become? A habit. But what we forget is there's bad habits, but there's also good habits. We've got to resist. Let me close in this way. I want you to hear me, church. In this subject right here in Scripture, there are no excuses, none. There are no exceptions. I can tell you I will be consistent with you. If you come to me and you have an excuse or an exception, I will say, nope. It's not what God's Word says. I want to tell you something, though. God can forgive. God does forgive. In fact, let me go a step further further talking about surgery God wants to do surgery in your life today it's as if there's those cancer cells there God wants to go in today if you will trust him if you will follow him if you will submit to him he wants to go in and cut it out today do surgery and for some surgery is needed right now Some of you today, some of you watching online, I know. I mean, it's too many people. Some people need surgery right now. Which leads me, I want to tell you about the biggest surgery that God ever did in my life. We call it the gospel. I was a sinner. I was in this messed up home. Nothing, and and I'm going to tell you right now, I'll tell you right now my story. My home that I grew up in was a home of lust and adultery over and over and over and abuse over and over but yet as a child God came into my life and he did the greatest surgery ever 
The gospel says we're all sinners, right? And the, and the payment is death. But the good news is God sent, we quoted it this morning, God sent his one and only Jesus. And I could, could believe, I could trust, I could repent of my sin, and God would come in and do surgery in my life. So some of you, you can you, try all you want on these subjects, but what you need is the greatest surgery ever. And I'm not talking about being a member of this church or a certain denomination or a certain family or whatever words you want to use. It's an individual personal issue with the creator of the universe. And we repent and we turn to him and he does this rescue plan. He rescues us. He becomes our savior and Lord. You can have that today. He can do that surgery in your life and it's the greatest one ever. And for those of you that, that that has happened to, back to the subject at hand. Surgery from God does not end with salvation. Hello? It continues with what we call sanctification. That process of being set apart every, each and every day, becoming more and more like our Savior and our Lord. God working more and more in our life. And that can happen today. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your scripture, even tough passages, even tough commandments. And remind us that we don't have to be frustrated and think, God, there's no way we can turn to you and you can fulfill these things in our lives. Lord, help us to trust in you. Help us to allow surgery to take place. God, it's been my prayer for weeks now that we would just get rid of the excuses or these circumstances. We would replace all that with you. So God, during this response time, I pray that you'd open our hearts and our minds, our eyes, our ears to all that you're saying to us right now from your word. God, speak your revelation to us right now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.